Last Sunday morning, we thought about our priorities as a church, our core commitments. And this week, as we turn back to John's Gospel, we're going to think together about our message. What is the message that we gather around and hold dear? What is the message we feed on and draw strength from ourselves, first of all, and then hold out to the world around us. It's a message of hope for the lost. In the passage we're going to look at, we'll see people lost in confusion and arrogance. And in the midst of all that lostness, we're going to see hope. First of all, through the words of Jesus, and then through the life of a man called Nicodemus. And if you are feeling lost this morning, there is hope for you in this passage. If you know someone who's lost, there's hope for them in this passage. We're going to read from John chapter 7, verse 25, down to verse 52. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1072, and in the larger print Bibles, 1660. Before we read... Let me just remind you that two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the start of chapter 7, and we saw Jesus going to Jerusalem for one of the most significant events in the Israelite calendar, the Festival of Tabernacles. We saw that halfway through that festival, which lasted for seven days, halfway through the festival, Jesus went to the temple courts in Jerusalem, and he began to teach. And his initial words to the crowd were words of challenge. He challenged them to stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Jesus challenged the crowds in Jerusalem to humble themselves and realize they were not seeing all there was to see. They were not understanding what they needed to understand. Their judgment was off course. It was inadequate. That was Jesus' challenge to the crowds. And as we pick up now in verse 25, we immediately see what an appropriate challenge it was. Because verse 25 tells us, at that point, after Jesus' challenge, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man? without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is God's word, and it divides into two sections. The first section holds out hope for those lost in the confusion of human understanding. Then in the second section, there is hope for those lost in the arrogance of unbelief. First, hope for those lost in the confusion of human understanding. In these verses, the crowds in Jerusalem are trying to understand Jesus. And they are just confused. And significantly, the human authorities they look to for guidance... Do nothing to ease the people's confusion. You can see that in the opening verses. In verse 25, John tells us some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? There's a reason why John specifies these are the people of Jerusalem. We know because of the festival, the city is rammed with people from all over Israel and beyond And back in verse 19, when Jesus asked the crowds why they were trying to kill him, some in the crowd were shocked at the very idea of that. In verse 20, they asked Jesus, who is trying to kill you? It seems the people who said that were not local to Jerusalem. But here in verse 25, the people speaking are from Jerusalem, and they know all about the plans to kill Jesus but they're very confused. Why? Well, they can't understand why the authorities in Jerusalem are leaving Jesus alone. And so they begin to wonder if the powers that be have changed their minds about Jesus. Look again at verse 26. Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? In their human confusion, the people of Jerusalem turned to the human authorities for guidance and ended up even more confused. The messages they got from the human authorities were unclear. The messages are mixed. And isn't that the way it goes? Right now, for example, do you feel clear about the economic situation and what exactly needs to be done to fix it. When you listen to the experts, do you feel any the wiser about what needs to be done? Isn't it putting it mildly to say the messages of the experts are mixed on that issue? Or think of a more long-term situation. 
Haven't we been brought up to put our confidence in science? Science will give us clear answers about life, the universe, and everything. Well, how has that worked out? Isn't it true that scientists working with exactly the same data actually come to very different conclusions? During COVID, did science give us a clear, unwavering answer about what needed to be done? Do scientists agree about the details of climate change and the solutions that are needed for that? And doesn't all of that give us reason to be a bit skeptical when science tells us we all evolved from a grease spot that emerged from nothing in the middle of nowhere an unimaginably long time ago? Isn't it true that relying on human authorities often leaves us lost in confusion? And relying on our own understanding doesn't improve things very much for us. In verse 27, in the face of mixed messages from their leaders, the people have a stab at making sense of things themselves. The crowd say, but we know where this man, that's Jesus, is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. How do these people know that when Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from? Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. But some other books from this time did teach that. So what these people claim to know about the Messiah is based on human ideas, speculation. But it's speculation we find in a book written by a rabbi, so we can trust it, right? The problem is, Jesus, the actual Messiah, is standing in front of these people, and because they're relying on human speculation about the Messiah, they assume Jesus can't be the Messiah because they know where he's from. They are lost in the confusion of human understanding. And in reply to the crowd, Jesus does what we've seen him do before. He doesn't try to persuade them. He doesn't say, well, if you just read this other book by this other rabbi, you'd see how you ought to think of me. No, Jesus simply says in verses 28 and 29, your human understanding of me is faulty. It's flawed. You know some things about me, like where I grew up, but to really understand me, you need to know my Father. He needs to be your authority. Not the human leaders in Jerusalem, not the human writers who write the best-selling books. And just to prove the point, the crowd are immediately shown they are dealing with something beyond human understanding. Verse 30 says, At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. We've seen before in John's Gospel, Jesus' hour is the time of his death. It's referred to again and again that way throughout the gospel. That hour is what Jesus came into the world for, to give his life as a ransom for many, to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we follow Jesus through John's gospel, it becomes clear that event will happen in God's time. God has set the time. And so until God's time comes, Jesus is untouchable. He is invincible. That's demonstrated here as the crowd try to seize Jesus, but they can't. We might wonder what actually happened. What did that look like? 
Well, later in John's Gospel, we hear about another time people tried to seize Jesus, and they ended up flat on the floor in front of him. They were dumped in the dirt by a supernatural power they couldn't withstand or overcome. Maybe that's what happened here. But whatever the exact details of this failed attempt to seize Jesus, these people are learning they are dealing with someone who is beyond their human understanding. And in verse 31, some respond positively to that. They believe in him. And that prompts the leaders finally to get involved, the chief priests and the Pharisees. They send the temple guards to arrest Jesus to try and do what the crowd hasn't been able to do. And later in our passage, we'll see what comes of that. But for now, Jesus ends this conversation with the crowd by again exposing their lack of understanding. In verses 33 and 34, he says he is going where they cannot come. And in trying to solve that riddle, the crowd again gets tangled up in confusion. Where is he going? What does he mean? The best they can come up with is that maybe Jesus is going on a tour of Europe. Together, verses 25 to 36 show us that relying on human understanding gets us lost in confusion, particularly when it comes to Jesus. But there is hope for us. There's a way forward from the confusion of our human understanding. The next verses invite us to come to Jesus, to stand in the stream of God's grace. Look at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Why did Jesus say this, particularly on the last day of the festival? Well, every day of the festival, there was a special ceremony that took place. A golden jug was filled with water from the pool of Siloam, which was in the lower part of Jerusalem. And then a procession carried the jug of water through the city up to the temple. That procession was accompanied by music and by singing. And when it arrived at the temple... The jug was carried round the altar and then poured out on the altar. On the last day of the festival, it was carried round the altar six times and then poured out as the climax of the festival. What did that ritual symbolize? Well, on one level, it looked back to God's provision of water in the desert long ago when the Israelites had left their slavery in Egypt. It looked backwards, but the festival of tabernacles was also about the present. It was a celebration and a thanksgiving for the current harvest, God's provision in the present. And the festival looked forward to what God had promised to provide in the future. Not just water in the desert, not just a good harvest, but the Holy Spirit of God, who would provide streams of spiritual blessing, who would provide satisfaction and life that would flow like a river. That picture of God's blessing coming like a river is described in numerous Old Testament passages. For example, Ezekiel chapter 47 pictures a future where water flows out from God's temple, first as a trickle, but then growing until it's ankle deep, then knee deep, and then finally deep enough to swim in. 
or in the passage we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 44. God says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And then God explains right away what he means by that. I will pour out my spirit. That's what the streams of water symbolize. We could give other examples from the Old Testament. But now we're ready to picture the scene here at the last and greatest day of the festival in Jerusalem. The procession comes up from the pool of Siloam, the high priest holding the golden jug in the air, the musicians playing, the singers singing those Old Testament scriptures about the Spirit of God flowing like rivers, and all of this watched by thousands of people crowding along the route of the procession. Then the procession arrives at the temple, it makes six circuits of the altar, and then just as the high priest raises the jug high to cover the altar in a deluge of water, Jesus stands up in full view of everyone and he calls out in a loud voice, let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, all those Scriptures you've just been singing, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus picked the perfect moment to make the point in the most powerful way. But what exactly is his point? If we imagine someone drinking to quench his thirst and then finding rivers flowing out of his body, it's a bit of a strange picture. But remember, it's a, a picture of a spiritual reality. Verse 39 explains it's about the Holy Spirit of God. Refreshing us, revitalizing us, satisfying us, filling us, in fact, to overflowing with God's love and goodness. Jesus is saying, if you want to stand in that river of God's grace, it's been promised in the Old Testament, if you want to experience that stream of grace flowing through you, and out even to those around you, then come to me. I'm the only way to access those rivers of living water. This is the only hope for those lost in the confusion of human understanding. Come to Jesus and your confusion will give way to the experience of God's grace. Verse 39 explains, this river of grace arrived after Jesus had been glorified. Meaning, after he had died on the cross, risen on the third day, and returned to his Father in heaven. Why did the river of grace arrive after that? Because the way to experience this river of grace is to believe in the crucified, risen, exalted Jesus. We step into the river of God's grace, not by relying on Jesus the teacher, not by relying on Jesus the good example. We step into the river of God's grace by relying on Jesus the Savior from sin. The Savior who paid the price for our sin. Is all of this beyond our human understanding? Yes, that the Son of God would take on flesh to do this for us. We cannot fathom such love. But Jesus doesn't call us to fathom it. He calls us to step into it and experience it. And this goes further than just an initial experience of forgiveness. This is a river that never dries up. That's Jesus' point. 
Maybe you're a Christian who is confused today by your particular circumstances in life. You cannot, for the life of you, figure out why your life is the way it is. It doesn't make sense. You may not be lost today, but you're feeling pretty lost. If that's you today, Jesus is calling you back to the stream of God's grace. In your confusion, he's calling you to come again and rely on him. Because he is still supplying daily grace to those who trust in him. The rivers of living water are still flowing. Now, this is not a promise that all your troubles and concerns will magically wash away. It is a promise that God's resources never dry up. His Holy Spirit is still here, still working to sustain those who come to Jesus in their confusion, in their spiritual thirstiness. And even in your troubles, this river of God's grace is able to flow through you to others around you. As you rely on Jesus in your weakness and confusion, you can still be an instrument of blessing to others. You might not imagine that, but it's true. So please don't shrink back. Don't pull down the shutters of your life and dry up spiritually. Come to Jesus and drink. Lean on his power, rely on his supply. Then in the last part of this passage, there is hope for those lost in the arrogance of unbelief. We've seen the confusion of the crowd, and now comes the anger and bitterness of the Pharisees and the chief priests. They're angry and bitter that people would dare to believe in Jesus. Verses 40 to 44 show us the crowd is divided because of Jesus. Some are ready to respond to his call. Others fall back onto their human understanding of him. They stay confused. And while the crowd continues to debate, the temple guards come back to the chief priests and the Pharisees. If you remember, in verse 32, these guards have been sent out with the order to arrest Jesus. But they come back without him and in verse 45, their bosses ask, why didn't you bring him in? The guards reply in verse 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law there's a curse on them. It's shocking to hear what these leaders think of their own people. They view the people as an ignorant mob who are under a curse. Well, we might ask if the people really do know nothing of the law, meaning the Old Testament law given by God, if the people really do know nothing of that law, Whose fault is that? Except these teachers of the law. But in fact, what these leaders are so bitter about is that the guards and some of the crowd would trust Jesus' word over theirs. In verse 46, when the guards say, no one ever spoke the way Jesus does, that's a blow to the pride of these leaders. These men who are very impressed by their own wisdom. And so in their arrogance, the leaders lash out. 
They don't give any genuine consideration to Jesus' call to come to him and drink. They just present themselves as the only real brains in Israel. We're the thinkers around here. We're the ones who know what's what. None of us would fall for Jesus' claims about himself. Fools might be taken in by Jesus. The intellectually deficient mob might take him seriously. But we are too smart to be taken in. It's just arrogance. A lot of unbelief is like that. It's a blow to our pride to hear that God's great work is beyond our understanding. It's a blow to our pride to be told the way into God's river of grace is through faith in this carpenter from Galilee. It's a blow to our pride to be told the great truths of life can't be accessed through human wisdom. That they're a gift to those who humble themselves and say to God, I come with nothing in my hands. No accomplishments, no credentials that can impress you. I just come relying on Jesus, on his accomplishments. And his credentials. Our pride resists all that. Maybe you're stuck in that position this morning. You don't want to join those who are seen as weak and foolish by this world because they follow Jesus. Is there a way forward for you? Yes. And the one who shows us the way forward is our old friend, Nicodemus. We can call him an old friend because we've met him before in John's Gospel, back in chapter 3. We learned in chapter 3 that he is a Pharisee. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. And in chapter 3, he came to Jesus at night quite probably because he didn't want to be seen associating with Jesus. He had enough interest to pay Jesus a visit, but enough pride to come secretly. And Nicodemus did come with a bit of arrogance in chapter 3. He started out by telling Jesus what he and his pals had decided about Jesus. But in response to that, Jesus famously told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. Born again by the Spirit of God. Jesus said the kingdom of God can only be entered by receiving new life as a gift from God. What a humbling route to take for a man who thought he was pretty high up in God's estimation. And in his pride, Jesus react, Nicodemus reacted to Jesus' words with a bit of snarkiness mixed in with a bit of bafflement. Nicodemus seemed to get stuck in what Jesus meant by being born again. In chapter 3, we saw no indication that Nicodemus believed in Jesus. And here... Well, what would you say about Nicodemus here? Do you see evidence here that Nicodemus has become a follower of Jesus? Well, look again what he says in verse 51. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? The point Nicodemus is making to his esteemed colleagues among the Pharisees and the chief priests, the point Nicodemus is making is that they're being a bit hypocritical. They're scoffing at the ignorant mob for not understanding the law, but the Pharisees themselves are actually trampling on one of the most basic principles of the law, the principle that no one should be judged without being given a hearing first. 
And for his trouble in pointing that out, in verse 52, Nicodemus gets a scornful put down from his mates. Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. You must be one of the riffraff too, Nicodemus. Just as stupid as the rest of the mob out there. Of course, like some of the crowd, the Pharisees are missing the fact that although Jesus grew up in Galilee, he was born in Bethlehem, which was a very significant place in God's Old Testament prophecies. The Pharisees don't know as much as they think they know. But the main point here is that although Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees, Simply by asking them to give Jesus a hearing, Nicodemus gets the brunt of the Pharisees' arrogant pride. Instead of listening to him, they show him the same contempt they show to the crowds. Nicodemus must have known that would happen, and yet he chose to speak up. The man who first came to Jesus by night now speaks up for Jesus in broad daylight. Is he a follower of Jesus? I'm not sure we can say that yet. But we will meet him one more time in John's Gospel. And by that third meeting, I think we will be able to call Nicodemus a true disciple. So here, what we are seeing is a man who is on his way from arrogant pride to living faith. Nicodemus is not where he needs to be, but he's not where he used to be. His first meeting with Jesus made an impact. It made an impression on Nicodemus. And so he didn't stand still in his arrogant pride. He took a step toward Jesus. That's proved by his action here in, verse, in chapter 7. He knows that Jesus deserves a hearing. He knows Jesus and his words cannot safely be dismissed. And Nicodemus is willing to make that point to those who want to kill Jesus, even though he gets a tongue lashing for his trouble. And later, as I said, we'll meet him one more time, having taken the final step of faith in Jesus. And these three meetings we have with Nicodemus provide hope for those lost in the arrogance of unbelief. Nicodemus shows there is hope for those willing to take steps toward Jesus. Now, it is true that biblically, there are ultimately only two categories of people. Those who are saved and those who are lost. Biblically, there is no third category of men and women who are nearly saved. That's true. However, I think Nicodemus is here to show us if you're not yet ready to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord, that doesn't mean you have no way forward. It doesn't mean you have to stand still. Are you willing to take a step toward Jesus? Are you willing, first of all, to consider the possibility that maybe it is accurate to call your unbelief arrogant? And maybe it's accurate to say you are lost in unbelief. Of course, it would be very easy to get offended by statements like that. But are you willing to consider that your unbelief might have more to do with pride than you've been willing to admit.
And that yes, maybe you are lost in some sense. Then are you willing to take the step of coming with your questions and your doubts? Talking about them. Listening to what scripture has to say about them. I would love to do that if you're willing to take that step. You don't have to stay where you are. Even if you're skeptical and unsure, you can take a step forward. Why not take the step of simply asking God to help you move forward? And if you are a Christian who loves someone enough to want to share your faith with them, but you're overwhelmed by how far they seem to be from Jesus, if you're in that situation, why not think of a small step you could ask that person to take? To come with you to an event? Or what about a small bit of your own story you could share with them? What about another Christian you could introduce them to? Small steps. Don't give up on someone because they seem so, so far away from Jesus. Think about Nicodemus. Think about the steps it took for him to arrive finally at faith in Jesus. Certainly, let's keep praying for that decisive moment of repentance and faith to come. And in the meantime... Let's pray and work for steps toward Jesus. Let's bring this to him together now in prayer. Father, you know us. You know those of us here this morning who are lost without Jesus. And you know those of us who belong to Jesus but feel lost because we just don't understand the situation we're in. We just cannot see what you are doing. We thank you that you know us. And we ask you to do your work in each one of us. Draw us to Jesus. For salvation and new life, if that's what we need. Show us the inexhaustible river of your grace, if that is what we need. To know that your grace surrounds us and washes over us, even when we don't understand. It washes over us continually in those times just as much as the times when we do understand. Come to us in your mercy and grace. Show us all that you have provided in Christ. And we ask this in the, in the strong saving name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's praise God as we sing together about his provision in Christ and the amazing fact that we can trust him even in our dark and sorrowful times.